Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of our podcast, Past, Present, Future. This week, we're lucky enough to be joined by food futurist Tony Hunter. Tony's somebody we've really wanted to have on the podcast for a long time. Tony is a food scientist, a business consultant, and a futurist specializing in the future of food. Drawing on his unique background, Tony helps businesses understand not only how technology change and innovation will disrupt their industry, but how they can profit from such change and potentially future-proof themselves. Tony recently spoke to Ben from Billion about what it means to be a food futurist, how technology has disrupted the food industry, and how personalized nutrition is the future of consumer marketing. Hope you enjoy this one. I am so honored today to be joined by Tony Hunter, who's working on the most interesting fields, some of the most interesting ideas. That's all I'll say for the moment, and I will hand over to Tony and say, Tony, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, then, after an introduction like that, I think we should just stop right there. I mean, that's about as good as it's going to get. <laughs> but look, thanks very much for that, Ben. Yeah, look, give me a bit of background on myself, um, food science and technology background, and um, you know, went from there into general management, uh, ran a couple of food companies, and then decided at some stage that I needed to be a you know, master of what I do. So I went down and became a consultant. And I've been doing that for the last 10 or 12 years now. And um, that's why I have such an interest in the future of food, because, you know, that science and technology background working in the industry. And about, say, three or four years ago, I started seeing all sorts of new technologies coming into the food industry and thought like, wow, things are really changing. This is not something that we have seen before. And then round about the end of 2017, we started seeing the, you know, the rise of the now well-known plant-based products and also cell-based meats start to come in. And you know, that was when, to me, things really took off and I thought, I have to get involved in this space. And so that's when I decided to get into the futurist side of things. And the rest, as they say, is, is history. Just introduce what it means to be a food futurist. Well, what I do, Ben, is I help companies understand how all these new technologies that are coming into the food industry are going to affect them. And not just you know the usual people, what's our three-year or five-year strategy, which some would say these days is still trying to be too ambitious. I'm looking out for companies 10 years, 20 years, 30 years out and saying, where are these technologies going? Looking for what they call the signals in the marketplace that tell us the direction that the food industry is going to change. And then what I can do is work with companies in their specific industry to say, well, what are those drivers that are going to drive changes in your industry? And so that you don't end up with, um, you know, being the new Kodak or the uh, new Blockbuster because they're companies that either didn't see it coming or didn't react to what was coming. What are the sort of changes that you see coming in the next 30 years? The, the single biggest one, which really is the one that I don't think enough people are keeping an eye on, is what's called synthetic biology. And that's where you can use genetically edited microorganisms to make food ingredients or make um, you know, alternative proteins and things like that. So I think that's the big sleeper one that is going to have some dramatic changes, whether in the food industry, whether you're in 
the petroleum industry, whatever industry you are in, synthetic biology is going to have an effect on you. People don't realise, you know, how synthetic biology is already affecting us as consumers. I mean, the other one is rennet and chymosin. Now, that's an enzyme that's used to separate milk into curds and whey. You take the curds and you make cheese. Since about 1990, that has been made through synthetic biology. Basically, 90% of all cheeses are made from the rennet, which is produced by genetically edited microorganisms. So we've been eating the, the products of that for 30-odd years. So I think yeah, that's the thing. As someone pointed out to me, though, that's okay when it's a component, but nobody goes out and buys a synthetic biology product. Maybe when we actually directly consume a product of synthetic biology, maybe people will think differently. But if we have a look at what's going on now, there are a lot of products that we're currently consuming that are made by animal agriculture. And animal agriculture simply cannot continue to provide the level of food that's required to feed the global population in 2040 or 2050. I mean, we currently use 50% of the arable land on the planet for food, 70% of that for animal agriculture. And the only way we can feed everyone in the world today or and certainly by 2050, the way that we eat in Australia or Ireland or the US would be basically to deforest the entire planet. And as we know, it's, that would have catastrophic consequences. What we've done up until now appears to be having catastrophic consequences, let alone if we try to just simply take the old linear approach which is, okay, if we've got 50% of the planet arable, we need to double the food production, let's just deforest the entire planet. It's simply not going to work. So we're going to need new technologies that are going to be more efficient and use of our current resources. Those two resources are water and land. There's not enough land left on the planet. Water, they say two-thirds of the people on the planet will be living in water stress conditions by 2025. So using our water and land um, very, very efficiently is going to be absolutely essential. And that's where something like synthetic biology can, can come in, which is to you know, make far more effective and efficient use of the, the resources that we've got left. Because for everybody on the planet to eat the way that we do, I say we almost have to double the amount of food that we grow. So that's not going to happen with the current conventional agriculture system. But there's quite a lot of talk right now about sustainability and and the health of our planet and stuff like that. Do you find that there's a bit of a disconnect in terms of the love talk from people who are willing, who are, you know, talking about how pressing these issues are, and yet they're not necessarily looking to the sort of solutions? I find that when I talk to senior executives in companies and I say, how do you keep up? with all these new technologies? The answer is generally, I can't. I can't run a company and worry about what's coming up in 10 or 20 years' time. So I think there's a big disjoint there between people. People think linearly. They think, okay, five years took five years to pass. The next five years will take five years to pass. So we're, we're linear beings as humans, but technology is exponential. 
And if you look at that, look at our smartphones and mobile phones. I mean, if you go back to 2006 and look at what's changed since then, people don't think about that. There were no smartphones. You made phone calls from your phone and maybe a text message or two. There was no Netflix. There was no Facebook. There was no 5G. We were talking about really um, slow bandwidth speeds, all that technology around communications. And look at where we are now. If you told somebody 15 years ago, describe what we're doing even now, Ben, with me in Brisbane and you there in Dublin, being able to talk and do this podcast and put podcasts out to people globally, people would have looked at you cross-eyed like you must be joking what's how's that going to happen that's never going to happen how how you know people are going to listen to it in their car from their phone connecting to their car to listen to the podcast made in dublin that they've downloaded you know they, they would have thought you were mad so this is a thing you know we need to look at what's happening in food now through the prism of technology because a lot of these new companies that are around, the synthetic biology companies, or even people like Impossible Foods, Beyond Meat, all these people, they are technology companies that make food. Traditional food companies think, if I get 2 or 3% reduction in my cost of goods and 2 or 3% increase in sales, I, I'm a hero. Let's, let's go get a glass of champagne. I mean, you'd have the uh, startup company guys you know, jumping off buildings if that was all they could get in, in 12 months. So we're at that stage now with a lot of these technologies where what looks like a very linear progression of these technologies, actually the very, very shallow curve at the start of the exponential curve. And we're just going to hit the inflection point in some of these in the next few years. Then when they take off, what took five years will take three years. What took that eight years will only take two years. What took all that 10 years will only take a year to double every time. And that's what we've got to realise is that it's only a matter of when that happens and not if. Because generally people tend to overestimate how quickly things will happen. And then people go, oh, well, they said it would take five years. It's been six and it hasn't happened yet. Well, maybe it might take seven or eight, but they dramatically underestimate the impact of what's going on. Look at the huge impact on the camera industry of smartphones. Basically, the mid-range compact camera has disappeared. It doesn't exist anymore. Why? Because I can take better pictures on my phone than I could by paying four or $500 for a camera 10 years ago. So that's totally disrupted that, that industry. So I think that's, again, a different mindset. So basically what we're doing is changing the way that we think about things. So changing our mindset on how we view technology and how it applies in the food industry. A lot of our listeners work in the agricultural industry and the fishing industry. What would your advice, I suppose, be to them in terms of if at all they can future-proof themselves? I think the thing is that no matter what technologies go ahead, whether it's conventional technologies like cattle or new technologies like cultivated meat, where you grow the animal cells in a large fermenter, you're still going to need inputs. Where those inputs are going to come from, they're going to come from plants. So those who are in the, the business of supplying those raw materials 
or who have an option maybe of whether they do animal agriculture or um, plant agriculture, plants are pretty well future-proof. We're always going to need plants. That's going to be the basis of what, whatever we do. We'll look at some things. There might be some algae coming in as well as the conventional crops that we do. But basically, we're going to need those raw material inputs. And then what it's going to come down to in the long term, in here talking 20, 30 years out, is how efficient is conventional agriculture versus new agriculture and its ability to provide the nutrients we need in terms of um, protein um, and other micronutrients, omega-3s, um, fats, whatever we need. I think that's going to be the thing. That's going to be the difference. And, of course, though the people that have the final say on any technology are the consumer. If the consumer doesn't buy the products, it doesn't matter how good the technology is, the technology is going to fail. And I think that we can't afford for these technologies to fail because certainly in the near future, there's room for conventional agriculture, animal and plant agriculture and these new technologies. There's no way we can scale any of these up within the next 10 to 20 years to replace what we currently produce. So I think that there's still a place for, uh, for the conventional agriculture and we just have to have a look and say to ourselves, you know, where does it all fit in? And is if there's going to be a transition, that's why um, agriculture and farmers federations and all these bodies need to get involved in these technologies, whether they believe in them or not. No one's expecting anyone from an animal ag agriculture background growing beef cattle to go to any of these you know, alternative technology conferences and come back a vegan. Um, but if you don't get involved and you don't understand what's going on, then you're in no position to react to the changing realities because there's, a, there's, you know, no one can predict the future. Anyone who tells you that's either a fool or a liar, but you can predict some possible futures. I mean, you could find that everybody says, I just love my meat so much, this plant-based stuff is okay, I'll have it once a week. Or the other extreme is, no, I'm against animal agriculture. I don't like all this stuff. I'm going to eat more plant-based for my health, for animal cruelty, whatever, and once a week I'm going to eat meat. Now, there's two extremes. Now, the future could be either of those or it could be something in between. But we need to look at what these possible futures are and then what we do is we then follow that up every three, six months, a year and see what is changing, which direction is the future taking. And that way we can then understand what those signals are and be prepared and ready to act on what we're seeing. Your technical background is fascinating, but I think a lot of our listeners would be very interested in like the sort of work that you do with businesses as a consultant. Would you mind talking a bit more about what, like, say, if a business was to bring you on, like what you do, the sort of steps you take without giving away too many of your secrets, of course? <laughs> no, no, I, I, I have my, my, my trademark methodology, which is my future cubed methodology, because as I say, the future is exponential. It's not just squared but it's cubed. And what I do with companies, firstly, is to say for a, a group of senior executives or board members, 
I'll say to them, this is what the new technologies are that are going to affect your industry. So this is what's going on. Because I've pointed out before, most executives, senior execs, board members don't have time to do this. So I get them to challenge their thinking, to start thinking about things differently. Look at those examples we talked about of how synthetic biology is, is affecting industry now, what it's done in the past. And I go to these conferences and these synthetic biology conferences, and I tell you, it goes over my head what these 21-year-old PhDs are talking about, even with a science background, um, and then get them to say, well, okay, now understand what these signals mean. So these are signals that something is changing, and we need to know what that is and follow that up. And then I have my what I call my future mind sessions, where it's a cross between like a mastermind and a brainstorming session, where what we do is we generate some of those possible futures that we just talked about previously, you know, no animal products, almost no animal products are eaten, or almost no plant-based products are eaten, and a couple in the middle there. So we can say, well, these are possible futures. And then what we can do then is if we know that, we can then get ourselves ready to act on those futures by, by following them. And then the third step is integrating that long-term futures thinking, that foresight strategy into being able to make decisions. So companies can look at it and say, based on what we thought might happen, based on what we're seeing, we've made our preparations as we go and we can take what I call decisive action. We get to a point where we say, this is going to be the future. We are now 90% certain, and therefore we are going to take action, and we're going to pursue that as if that future is the future that's going to happen. So lead the companies through a few different steps to from looking at challenging the thinking to be in a position to make decisive action. And uh, that's, say, my future cube, which is you know, challenge your thinking, understand the signals, be ready to act, embrace exponentially changing technology and decisive action. And that, if you like, covers the uh, three parts of my offering then. And, yeah, and, if, and if anybody's interested, I'll be in the UK speaking at uh, the NEC in Birmingham. Fantastic. What are the changes in the food industry coming from a more, like I suppose, a marketing perspective, a more consumer yeah. perspective? Yeah, look, I think that you're absolutely right. And I'll give you two words for the future of food through to 2050. Personalised nutrition. If we go back to what we talked about before with genomics, people getting their DNA tested to determine their food predispositions. Now, a lot of that's only maybe 60, 65% true at the moment. But as we get millions and tens and hundreds of millions more genome sequenced, that will become more and more accurate. And if we combine that with the microbiome testing that we were talking about before, then you have a really good understanding of how you personally react to food. Because, for instance, we could get Ben, 10 people in a room, give them all a piece of chocolate and my blood glucose goes through the roof, yours does nothing, and the other people are in the middle. We give everybody an apple, yours goes through the roof, mine does nothing, and everybody else is in the middle. It is that personalised how we react to food. And if you look at that whole personalised, um, uh, general personalisation for the consumer, You've got things like uh, they, um, cosmetics company L'Oreal, 
uh, ladies and gentlemen, of course, can get online and they can go to the L'Oreal site, have a personalised hair dye produced for them and delivered to their home for 20 US dollars. There are also companies out there that are making personalised fitted clothing just for you. And if you look at it, um, what's exactly around now, there's a, a restaurant chain called Vitamojo in the UK. They've teamed up with DNA Fit. You get your DNA analysed, you upload that to Vitamojo, you turn up at the restaurant, and the touch screen will recommend to you, based on your DNA, which foods you should eat that are on their menu. And that's out there now, three stores in London. Company, my other favourite um, genomics testing company is a company called DNA Nudge. They've just opened a store in London as well. And you get a kit from them about the size of a shoebox. You get a swab, cotton swab. You swab the inside of your mouth, put it in the cartridge, break it off in the cartridge, put the cartridge on the shoebox. You wait 15 minutes. After 15 minutes, it's analysed your DNA and uploaded the results to your phone. You can go to your local Tesco's, or I think Waitrose is the one they're, they're, they're partnering with now, and scan your food, and it will tell you whether that can of soup is the best can of soup that you should be buying or whether you should buy a different brand because it's better for you. So these things are out there now. So that And that personalisation is what consumers are after and it's only going to increase as time goes by. And once the genomics analysis becomes really, really far more accurate and same thing with your microbiome analysis, then people are going to say, well, I want what's good for me and that's and I want it now. I don't want it, you know, um, in 10 years' time. I want what I want and I want it now. Do you see there being any resistance that will impede the progress of, of such technologies? No, if, if we sort of look at that in two parts, Ben, if we look at some of the alternative food technologies themselves, we're already seeing significant pushback from the animal agriculture industry, both the dairy industry and the meat industry, not wanting products called meat or beef or not wanting you know, um, anything but um, dairy milk called milk. So we are seeing pushback from the entrenched conventional industries. But as I like to say, I think I said before the other podcast, the, uh, the cow is bolted with the milk. You can take the word milk off every almond, soy and oat milk in the country and people would still buy it. They, they wouldn't even notice it had changed. Now with things like meat and so on, you know, does the animal agriculture industry own the word burger or the word sausage? Is that their IP has been put up? When I, I asked, does the automotive industry own the word car? Can they define what should or shouldn't be a car? I mean, that's to me. And you know, technology is here. You can't get the genie back in the bottle. You can try, like the music industry, um, to you know, keep stuff the genie back in the bottle. Look what happened. Why does a Swedish company called Spotify own a huge parcel of the streaming industry, music industry, instead of Sony Music or someone? Because they saw the opportunity and went with the opportunity, and the music industry just tried to stop it happening, and it just, just didn't work. So I think that... You know, there are potential barriers there from the conventional industries, but I think that's um, counterproductive. They should be looking at 
getting involved and what they can do to integrate themselves with the new technologies and with what these possible futures are. And you know, let legislation, again, because the conventional industries have a lot of power politically in the states and you know, in most countries of the world where there's a large conventional agriculture industry, then yeah, certainly legislation is that tool that they're trying to use. It seems to be the go-to for um, for a lot of these a lot of these industries. But again, yeah, it's going to come down to in the end persuading the consumer that this is something that's safe, that's nutritious, and that they can rely on. If we can get that across by making people familiar with things, then I think there's a good chance of these new technologies being accepted. And if we look at the fact that we simply can't feed the world without some of these new technologies, so we're going to have to come to terms with them in some way, shape or form. Um, I think we've got the second part, the personalised nutrition. Who doesn't want something personalised exactly for them? I, I think that one from a consumer point of view is a no-brainer. How we provide that through those technologies is certainly something that remains to be seen, but that's going to happen Either way, we're just seeing increased personalization in all aspects of our life, and people are going to expect it in food. Now, the big problem for a food industry is if, if I'm making a million loaves of one type of bread, how do I make one loaf a million different times? Well, I, I probably can't, but maybe what I could do is I could make 10 different loaves at 100,000 pieces for what they call the different metabolomes of the people, so different metabolic types. And then my prediction is that what we'll see is we'll see the last mile personalization in the home. So there's already companies producing personalized micronutrient and vitamin mixes. So a company called MixFit, and you can basically upload all your data to the MixFit app, and then in the morning, it will give you a drink containing all the micronutrients and everything that you that you need for the day. And if you project that further out, combine that with technologies, you can now take a picture of your food and the AI will calculate the calorific value and nutritional value of what's on your plate from the photograph. No need to write a, a journal, no need to guess how many grams of meat or potatoes you've got. The AI will work it out. It will upload it to your personal AI through your um, Fitbit or whatever your wearable technology we've got in 20 years' time. And at night, the AI will go, Tony, you've been a very naughty boy. You didn't get out in the sun. I'm giving you a vitamin D shot. And Ben, you should not have had that big piece of steak. We just have to do something about your cholesterol here. So, you know, and that's, that's how it will be. We'll get that last mile um, personalization in the home, whether that be on the spot or whether that be something that you buy um, on a monthly basis, premix for you. There's companies that will premix all these sorts of things for you based on your lifestyle and everything else. My prediction is I'm leaning more towards something in your home that you come in and you have a glass in the morning when you get up and a glass at night before you go to bed, and that will be the top up for your personalised nutrition. That's absolutely fascinating. And just as, as as we wind up here, a lot of people we work with, 
their alcohol producers, alcohol distributors, alcohol mm-hmm. brands. How do you think this, all this affects them? Because if we're talking about you shouldn't have had that steak, you shouldn't have, have you didn't get enough vitamin D, well, you certainly shouldn't have had those three pints of uh, Fosters. <laughs> I think there are changes going on in the marketplace which are leading us away from the consumption of alcohol we've seen in the past. The biggest consumers, particularly of wine and so on, are the boomers. If you look at Gen Zs and millennials, they are not drinking as much as previous generations. And one of the biggest growing areas is low alcohol or non-alcoholic beverages. So I think there's going to be a big push towards that and making soft drinks adult. I mean, moment, you know, you go somewhere and if you're not drinking alcohol, what have you got? Lemonade orange juice, Coca-Cola, fizzy drink of some sort. You know, I mean, you know, yeah, not really an adult drink per se. And we're seeing people coming in, particularly uh, I've seen a couple of companies over there in the UK who are making um, adult spiritless spirits, if you like, where they're complex, highly flavoured products that taste a lot like what you might get from an alcoholic beverage but are alcohol-free. So you can have an adult drink without having to have the alcohol. So things have changed over here in Australia. When they brought in the, uh, the drink driving laws bring in the other and the, and the testing, that really hit the wine industry particularly hard. Um, and I think that that's going to you know, focus on that is going to continue. And where I was going with that one actually was when that came in, saying, I'm sorry, I can't have that next beer or the next glass of wine because I'm driving became socially acceptable. Before that, you're not going to have another drink. Come on, you know, it's your, your shout. Here we go. It's, sorry, I'm drinking lemon juice because I've got to drive. Oh, well, gee, yeah, you don't, don't want to get booked. And I think it's going to change again. What are you, you're not having alcohol? No, I'm having this spiritless spirit. Have a taste this. Wow, that's fantastic. It tastes great. And, of course, we're seeing, you know, CBD cannabidiol come in as well. And there's another company that's actually concentrating on um, making something that reacts to the brain like alcohol, but without the side effects of alcohol. So if you're a sci-fi fan and you're reading about synthahol and things like that, that might be five or ten years away where you can have something that tastes like alcohol, reacts on the brain like alcohol, but you're livable, thank you for it. I think the personalised nutrition has the potential to minimise the negative effects of alcohol. I mean, by maybe giving you shots of vitamin B, making sure you're fully hydrated when next morning, things like that. I mean, there'll never be a cure for overindulgence in alcohol. I mean, I don't see that being something that's going to happen. But I do see that personalised nutrition would help minimise the effects of drinking so that you know what is you should be doing to minimise that. But I think as saying, um, this other company just came to mind, um, it's a, a company called um, Al- um, Alcarel, and they're the ones that are doing the, the synthahol, if you like. So I think at the moment what we're finding is, particularly with C- CBD as well, is another one where people are looking for the relaxation, which I think is why a lot of people drink alcohol, they drink wine for relaxation. If they find an alternative that gives them the relaxation without the negative effects, then 
again, it becomes like, well, why wouldn't I give that a try? And as long as I can be assured it's safe, and as long as I can be assured there's no side effects to me, then why would I not go to some alternative that is not associated with the negative health effects of, of alcohol consumption? Let's get some plugs in, I suppose. Where can people find you? Do you want to contact you? Do you want to hear more of you? Yeah, well, thanks very much for that, Ben. Uh, my website is www.futuristforfood.com. And you can also find me at uh, Tony Hunter on LinkedIn and my Twitter feed, Tony H Futurist. So all those, you'll find me regularly blogging. There's a lot of information there on the website on the future of food. And as I say, I'm regular on Twitter and LinkedIn as well. And you'll find all my contact details there. Feel free to contact me whichever way works for you. Tony, thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your week. And hopefully we'll have you on again sometime. Sounds great, Ben. Thanks a lot for the opportunity. Have a great day. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Past, Present, Future is produced by Billion Studio, a creative agency providing brand design, strategy, content design, and experience design in the heart of Dublin. Mm-hmm.